This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You are listening to episode 107. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rkraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, Please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the Microcap message. So I got a couple announcements uh, before we get to today's episode. First up, uh, we are a little over two months away from our annual investor conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, which is April 21st through 23rd, 2020 in Las Vegas at Bally's Hotel and Casino. We have some great speakers lined up this year, including well-known microcap investors and fund managers, some you may have heard on this podcast before, including Connor Haley, Maj Don, Jason Hirschman, Sam Namiri, Paul Andriola, who will be moderating a panel on the best ideas to capitalize on the Canadian microcap bull market, Joe Boscovich Jr., who will be moderating a panel on opportunities in the entertainment industry, and David Lockman from the Benchmark Company, who will be moderating a panel on looking for value in the cannabis industry. So registration is now open to register. Go to www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com and click register now. I hope you can join us this year, and uh, please feel free to email me if you have any questions at rcraft, R-K-R-A-F-T, at snnwire.com. Second announcement, starting with this episode, Planet Microcap Podcast will now be publishing weekly episodes. Thanks to your support and the growing popularity of the podcast, I've been able to attract some of the best financial experts, thinkers, philosophers, fund managers, investors to be guests on this show. And I'm really just so stoked to be part of your weekly routine. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I spoke with Yaron Neymark the founder and portfolio manager at One Main Capital. As you will hear, Jerome is incredibly passionate about investing, and that enthusiasm has been matched by his performance in 2019, where his fund had a year-to-date performance of 25.2% and 12.4% in Q4 2019 alone, net of fees and expenses, all figures based on One Main Capital's Q4 2019 investor letter. He's young and hungry, and I'm really excited to share this full chat with you. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 107 of the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my interview with Yoron Neymark. But first, a word from our sponsor. To my loyal listeners, subscribers, and fans, Robert Kraft here, your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. The 2020 investor conference season is upon us. Where are you going this year? I'd like to take a second to invite you to join me, maybe a few of the guests you've heard on this podcast, to our annual Microcap Investor Conference, the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21st through 23rd, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. The Planet Microcap Showcase will be two and a half days of company presentations, networking opportunities, an educational workshop, and you will get to meet privately in one-on-one meetings with management of well-known emerging growth private and publicly traded microcap companies. We are back with new surprises and programming that you will not want to miss. So join us for the Planet Microcap Showcase, April 21 through 23, 2020 at Bally's Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas. For more information and register to attend, please visit www.planetmicrocapshowcase.com. See you in Vegas. This is Robert Kraft, and I'm your host on the Planet Microcap podcast. And with me today is Yaron Neymark. He is the founder and portfolio manager at One Main Capital. Yaron, welcome to the Planet Microcap podcast. How are you doing? Thank you, man. Doing well and glad to be here. 
great to have you on. And, uh, you know, I got to say, this is my first interview since having a kid. So, uh, you know, uh, kids get a little bit more expensive. We got to make this thing go viral. So right now I need your hottest stock picks. You know, your top three, go. I'm just kidding. Don't, uh, don't, don't, don't give the stock picks. <laughs> All right. But uh, I'm, I'm probably even going to cut that joke out. I, I charge I extra for that. <laughs> oh, you do? Oh, okay, good. So, 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 you know, let's moving past just horrible jokes, which I'm sure that won't be the, uh, the only one that we make today. You know, let's start with your background. You know, how'd you get to where you're currently at today? Um, all right. Yeah. So, uh, grew up in South Florida. Um, I had, uh, my parents were immigrants. They moved here a few years before I was born to the States. And, um, my dad was originally working for others and then eventually set off on his own. Uh, he started out selling electronics at the flea market, um, and then he, you know, opened his own store in South Beach selling um, items to tourists. And um, besides being around his store growing up, so that was one small business. Um, we also had a bunch of family friends who had their own businesses as well, um, different varieties and sizes. Some that are actually now pretty big today. Um, and I still remember, you know, after dinner and, and childhood dinners. Um, all the kids would be asked to be excused from the dinner table to go play. And I'd always want to stay back and listen to them, listen to them speak about the business challenge of the week and what investments they were looking to make. And so I knew from a very early age that I was interested in business and that's, that was my passion. And, um, I was trying to figure out, you know, I didn't know yet how I was going to apply that passion into a career. Um, but when I got to college, I was doing a lot of reading. I used to be an early riser and just searching the internet for like what I want to be when I grow up. And um, I stumbled upon this thing called investment banking, and I, you know, I was intrigued. Um, it sounded completely foreign to me, to be honest, what they did. Uh, tried looking it up. I saw there's sales and trading and investment banking. Couldn't figure out the difference between the two or anything else they did. And um, but I knew it'd be a good place to start a career. So um, they didn't really recruit on campus where I went to school at University of Florida. Go Gators! Um, <laughs> but I, I, I <laughs> shameless plug. Um, hey, listen, but you, at least, mean, you at least had a college football team. UCSD, we had nothing. Even my NBA, I, Pepperdine, we didn't have a football team. Yeah, I, I was there during the Tebow years, Hernandez years. Um, we had a great basketball team when I was there. Um, but yeah, there was no on-campus recruiting. We had good, good sports, but no on-campus recruiting. But um, I managed to scrappily uh, scavenge my way into a couple of interviews at the big banks. Um, and landed an internship uh, one summer, which I then converted into a full-time offer at one of the bulge brackets. Um, and from there, I started in the summer of 2008 um, and quickly realized that a better place to learn business than investment banking um, was to actually be in the boardroom uh, when big decision, decisions were being made, you know, the behind the scenes, the off the record conversations. And I figured private equity was a good place to get that kind of exposure. Um, the credit, you know, was coming out of the financial crisis. PE wasn't really hiring that much because credit markets were kind of closed. And when they were hiring, their class sizes were pretty small. Um, and they always preferred, grad, you know, small class sizes, not hiring much. They kind of preferred um, Ivy League graduates over University of Florida graduates. And so I wasn't that hopeful. Uh, I tried going through headhunters and they weren't giving me the time of day. But um, through a friend of a friend, I was able to um, land an interview at one of the big mega, um, well-known private equity firms. And I thought I did well for most of the interviews, but I, I knew I messed up one or two questions and I walked out of there. I was like, man, I just blew the only shot I'm ever going to have at, at doing this thing that I think is really interesting. And I told myself, I just, I just need one more, like, give me one more shot and I'll, I'll land it. And, um, somehow I was able to land an interview at a firm called HIG Capital um, based in Miami, but they have a global presence. And, um, and, and like I, I knew if I just got one more shot, I'd get an offer and I ended up getting an offer there. And so I went there for a few years. Um, and while I was there, I got great deal experience. It was a really busy time for, for us while we were there, um, buying, selling platform acquisitions, bolt-ons. Um, but on the side, my, you know, my passion again, business investing, I, I was doing a lot of reading, um, uh, of all the investing grades. And um, I realized that my real passion was studying businesses and turning over as many new rocks um, as possible and valuing those rocks. And in PE, while you, you do that a fair amount, you also spend a lot of your time 
working on transactional stuff, you know, structuring debt, negotiating legal documents, um, dressing up businesses for sale. And I, I wanted to really just turn over rocks, learn about them. That's my passion, value them. So decided to make the move to public markets. And um, I ended up working for two hedge funds, both value-oriented, long-short hedge funds before eventually starting one main um, with the support of um, a couple of my former bosses that I worked for at the previous funds, as well as friends and family, and as well as my capital. So that's kind of how, how I got started here. So, so during your time when you were starting to, you know, study some of the greats and reading some of these books, I mean, what was some of your, who were some of your biggest inspirations, you know, were some of the classics like Intelligent Investor and one of yeah, I mean, some of those? Yeah, Joel Greenblatt, Seth Klarman, um, I would, and I would read anytime someone even gave us a, a speech at a college, if it was on YouTube or something, I would want to listen to it, whether it was Tepper and just studying all the different guys who are well known for making money and understanding how they went about making money. And I, I tend to gravitate more towards, you know, the deep fundamental for, uh, research hedge funds as opposed to like the macro or ones that whip around their nets and exposures all the time. But I, I just wanted to listen to everyone. I just, it's a passion of mine understanding. And not only that, I mean, just studying businesses as well. Uh, in addition to how people analyze businesses. Those have always been my passions, yeah. You know, it's funny and interesting because, you know, a lot of people who I interview on here, they, you know, grew up, uh, you know, they read One Up on Wall Street, Invest Intelligent Investor, you know, those books first, and and they really kind of started their value investing experience as like their first stop in their investing life cycle. And that's where they got, got going. You know, for you, it's almost like a throwback to like some of those yeah. 80s investors who were like, I'm going to go to Wall Street because investment banking, that's awesome. I'm, I'm not doing an impression of you, I promise. But, you yeah, know, <laughs> but that's me. That's it's, me. It's interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's my background. Very cool. So, all right. So, we just got the full background here. You know, when exactly did you start One Main Capital? And how would you say One Main Capital is different than some of the other value-oriented funds that are out there? Yeah. So, um, I started One Main in early 2018. Um, and I, I guess the main idea behind it was uh, to create a vehicle to compound uh, mine and my investors or partners' capital at an attractive rate over a long period of time without ever, you know, betting the house, so to speak. Um, and I guess we could talk about the actual investment philosophy in a little bit. Um, but I guess the goal from the start uh, was to run the fund in a way that maximizes the performance to investors, of which I'm the largest at the moment rather than to the manager. Um, and I think staying small is an important part of that because um, it leaves us with a larger investable universe and allows us to be more nimble. And so I don't ever plan on scaling it to the size that some of the funds I've been at, you know, I've been at multi-billion dollar funds. I don't ever plan on ever trying to scale it to anywhere near those sizes. And um, and I wanna be fair to my investors. You know, it's why I put in a 5% annual hurdle rate, for example, um, and so, um, it's really the main focus is, like I said, just compounding capital for, and doing the right thing for my LPs. Um, but mo more importantly, you know, on top of that, the fund comes with me as the manager. Um, and it's funny because, um, you know, with Kobe's, uh, Kobe Bryant's tragic passing recently, uh, it led me to listen to a bunch of uh, his interviews on, on YouTube or wherever I found them. And um, he's very motivational. I like forgot how motivational he is when he speaks. Same. But in, in one of the interviews, he talks about how he consistently woke up at like 3 a.m. to make it to pra the practice facility by 4 a.m. And how he'd practice from 4 to 6, come back home, he'd have breakfast, rest a little bit, go back to the facility from 9 to 11, um, come back home, have lunch, rest for a little bit, go after lunch, back, have dinner, go back after dinner. And, and that's how he'd spend the day. And he finished the interview by saying, you know, by year five or six, it doesn't matter what kind of work the competition puts in in the summer, they're just never going to catch up to him. And um, that struck me because I think it's kind of similar in investing. Um, you know, that type of work ethic is what makes people get better each and every day. And you have to have passion to put up that kind of work ethic. And I, I really have passion as a, as a business analyst. I think I'm as good of a business analyst as anyone out there. Um, I'm a good risk manager. I, I, I'm getting better by the day. I have a diverse background. Um, I've had exposure to like 
a ton of different mindsets, um, smart business owners, private from the private equity seat, public market investors. And so I could draw from all those experiences in my quest for greatness. And I just love that I get to paint my own painting every day. Dude, I'm ready to go like uh, jump on a court right now. And, and you want to you want to be the coach or let's go let's cap. It. Let's go, man. Let's actually, actually, I play basketball. I'm, I'm nowhere near Kobe level or as passionate about basketball as he is. Play basketball every week with my with a bunch of friends. We rent out a court in New York City and just play for two hours, which is great. But but stocks and investing are my passion. So I thought it was a great analogy. Well, let me t- let me ask you this. I mean, has Adam Sandler stopped by that court to play with you yet? Because I have a couple friends out here who, you know, he plays these pickup games and they randomly are like, dude, Adam Sandler just came and played. No, but we actually, so we rent, it's a really nice court and this high school in the West Village that we rent out for two hours. And, and we saw actually last year, I think it was, Dwayne Wade tweeted out publicly, I'm in New York, like who's ready to ball? And someone responded to him saying, come to Chelsea Piers. And he came and played oh, with Chelsea them. We're like, oh, we're like, oh my God, we should have told him to come to our game. Um, yeah, but no, Adam Sandler. Oh, that's awesome. When I when I used to live in New York, like we played all of our Little League games. This is back when Chelsea Piers first opened where they had the, the roof to play uh, uh, all your Little League and baseball games on it. Oh, man. That's, oh, that's so, great. That's oh, the best. Love Chelsea so cool yeah. and like i had a birthday party i remember inside they had the they had the they have a batting cage and it's it's the best shame yeah. a plug to chelsea Piers. maybe we can get them as a sponsor one day uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but um you know i also i wanted to follow up on real quick before we get into the philosophy do, does the does the fund uh, focus on one specific asset class like microcap or are you small micro nano i mean where, where, where's the, te- the the focus um so i i, I tend I started out looking at anything. Um, I found myself bunching up in different, you know, in two different market caps, which are complete opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, I, I really find myself looking at um, either like the mega caps or really big caps or really small caps. Right now, over half the fund, I would say probably two thirds of the fund is is small and micro caps. But it seems to me like the mid cap space is is very competitive um, for from from a couple perspectives. I mean, first of all. Um, from a valuation perspective, because uh, managers that play in that space, um, there's a ton of active managers actually that play in that space, and they, they they spend all their time looking at it. There's a lot of structural reasons why they can't play in the really small market caps from a liquidity standpoint. You know, if you need to buy uh, 25 or 50 million dollars or something, you can't look at a 25 or 50 million dollar market cap company, so they can't play there just structurally. And in terms of the really big stuff. I find that a lot of my friends at one to two billion dollar hedge funds, it's it's too consensus for them to look at the really big caps. They can't tell their LPs, they can't tell their bosses that that's their most original idea, and so you have this situation where um, index funds already own, they own the allocation that they plan on that they that they're supposed to own of these really big caps, right? Um, you have some uh, active managers who are willing to own those consensus names, call it Google, for example, they already have a full position, they're not adding to it. And then you have a bunch of employees who have their stock vest every year, they're structurally sellers of the stock. And so you have this situation where like these stocks have clearly been undervalued for a very long period of time. I mean, if a stock goes up 25% a year for like decades, it's clearly undervalued every year, like a, pr- a stock shouldn't be priced that way. And so there's, I think there's some interesting reasons why it's just it's just hard for a two billion dollar fund to go tell their LPs that, that their best idea is Google. So, and that, that those companies tend to be growing at amazing rates. I mean, how many companies of any size are growing revenues at 15, 20 percent a year consistently for decades with really high returns on the cap? You know, very little capital investment. And um, and and obviously, when you get to that size, you by definition have a really wide moat. So um, I, I play in both of those spaces. Um, with, with I, I gravitate a little more towards smaller caps for reasons we can discuss in a little bit, but but yeah, that's pretty much where I tend to play. No, it's a, it's it's an interesting almost like a like a hedge. You know, you have your, I mean, your both ends of the spectrum. You know, you're going for your higher quality, not necessarily higher quality, but at least your blue chip names, more or less. Yeah. You know, you have that sense. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you you have that sense of security, and you know you're offsetting that with maybe some riskier names that have some hair on it, which. Uh, yeah. You know that's our that's our our bread and butter and our favorite thing to talk about. 
exactly. We'll let everybody else talk about Google and Apple and, uh, and yeah. dive into that. You know, we'll we'll di- we'll dig into uh, ABCD uh, Cement Company. You know that. Yeah. But for full disclosure, that is not a tr- real company. Uh, just want to make sure that's out there. All right, so yeah. let's get into your investing philosophy. Then you kind of alluded to it already. Uh, let's get the full wrap. You know, what is One Main Capital's full-on investment yeah. philosophy? So, um, I mean, it's a long-biased equity fund. Um, invests. I look to invest in a combination of long-term quality and shorter-term special situations. Um, I have a preference towards the longer-term quality or what people call compounders, all else being equal. Um, and we can touch on that in a little bit. Um, but fairly concentrated, the top five positions are usually around 50% of uh, the fund. And um, it's important to note that um, almost all of the investments I look at are pretty, you know, all of them, um, they have strong downside protection in the form of valuation, durability, and either high current cash generation or high, very high confidence in the growth outlook and future cash generation of the business, preferably both. Um, and so when I'm looking at companies, like we just touched on, I'm, I'm unconstrained in terms of what I can look at. Um, I have, um, like, like, yeah, like I said, I, I have friends at these funds who can't look at, at a lot of names in the small cap or big cap space, and I can look at both of those. Um, but a big chunk of the portfolio um, is invested in small caps. And I like the small stuff specifically because it's a space where, you know, like we touched on a second ago, there are those structural reasons that lead to companies being misvalued and um, that allow me to see something that I think the average market participant looking at that space might be missing. There's less capital chasing those small caps, um, less eyes looking at them, less research, uh, a lot of times no consensus estimates. And it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, if um, if you're a fund that's looking to put the 25 to 50 million to work, like I said, or if you're a research firm that's looking to generate enough fees to justify, oh, sorry about that. Um, that's looking to make enough fees to justify um, publishing research about a name, you can't look at those small companies. So research firms can't really look at them. Mid mid cap active managers can't really look at them. So there's all those structural reasons are kind of the reason why I look at them. And um, one of the things I learned actually when I was in private equity was that um, we would buy these very small companies, sometimes two, three, four, five times EBITDA, and we would grow them to a larger size through M&A or organic investments. And then when it came, um, and then when it came time, sorry about that. Um, and then when it came time to sell them, there was more of an institutional bid. We would talk about it all the time. It's like, wow, we buy, we buy a few of these assets for three to five times EBITDA, we put them together, or we buy something for three, four times EBITDA, and then invest organically to grow the business. And then when the business gets larger, even though the fundamentals of it haven't really changed that much, there's just an institutional bid there that leads to natural multiple expansion at exit. And you could do that with microcaps. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's a great way to add performance if you can get multiple expansion, if you can buy something for cheap, it grows earnings and then you sell it for a higher multiple than what you want in. And um, I think it's a great way and, and micro caps um, and small caps have that embedded advantage. So, so you, yeah. I was going to say, so you mentioned a few times your background and how that's really helped your pretty much your entire philosophy at one main capital. What would you say are some of the main distinctions that you you perceive to have from that experience at investment banking? and at private equity that really lends itself to help you find winners more often than let's say the the next fund manager. Yeah, I mean, um, I think that- Assuming you're finding winners, of course, you know, just- uh, Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I think touching on some of the things we touched on, I think um, hunger, passion, just turning over a lot of rocks is one of them. Um, but you have to be a good business analyst also, and you have to have a good understanding of capital allocation and what you know what drives earnings growth. It's a lot, and over the long run, stocks move with earnings for the most part, and so you have to have a good understanding of all the levers that are can be pulled and and what leads to maximizing earnings growth over the long term for these businesses, and really understanding you know so so the, from the PE and investment banking, and also from the public market investing side. 
you know, all those lend themselves really well to understanding earnings growth and how and how you kind of come around to them. Then you need to be a good business analyst. That's just from passion, studying for long periods of time. And some people get it, some people don't. And then also something important and unique to public markets that are not in PE and are not in just reading and studying are understanding what actually moves stocks in addition to earnings growth. And that could be, you know, funds flow, fund flows, catalysts, um, investor sentiment, and and being in public funds for an extended period of time has also allowed me to kind of learn to look for those things that at first blush you might not realize are important to move stocks and and um, and yeah, so those are kind of the things that. What would you say is your your normal time frame for you know? Let's say you're gonna get a starter position in a stock and then build up to your full position. You know what what tends to be your your time frame that you're looking to hold on to these stocks for? You know, is it that you know one to two years, three to five years, five plus? You know, what what's your thought process there? Yeah, I mean, it, it really depends on whether it falls into the special situation bucket or the long term compounder bucket. Mm-hmm. Um, if it falls into the long term compounder bucket. Um, a, typically I know those businesses, um, I've, I've been following them for a long period of time, or if I come across them, th- there might not be a, as much of a rush to build a full position right away. Um, I have time to kind of learn. I don't think it's going to re-rate on me overnight, those types of businesses. And I plan to hold them for a very long period of time as well. So like buying something 10, 15% cheaper, even if it runs on me or a little 10, 15% more expensive is not the end of the world. The special situation stuff, I think sometimes you have time and you know that a catalyst might be six months out, 12 months out, and sometimes you have to act fairly quickly. Um, and when you're acting quickly, I think it's important to be able to quickly assess you know, what the key risks of that special situation are and what you're looking at and how you could be wrong and what it can cost you if you're wrong. And in those situations, I mean, you could, I could put on a position fairly quickly. I mean, I won't obviously make it a core big position until I've spent a decent amount of time on it, but I, you can generally, with those special situations, figure out relatively quickly if if they make sense or not. Um, and that could be, you know, I could do a day's worth of work and put on a, a starter position, and then you know, as I do more work, kind of scale it up. All right, so this actually is a perfect segue to. Um, I wanted to ask you a few questions based on your recent investor letters. You know. By recent, I mean, you know, you just started in 2018, so there isn't too many, but that's that's what's pretty cool about this is that we can kind of dive a little deeper into it because um, it really gives a good picture about your investing philosophy and, and some of, uh, just gives a little bit more detail about, you know, how you go about doing your business. So, you know, in, in your Q2 2018 investor letter, you, again, discuss this idea of long-term compounders and how you have a preference for investments that can compound earnings over time. You've already kind of referenced this a little bit already, you know, but... I wanted you to elaborate on this actually a little bit further and, and really do you find it difficult to maintain that discipline now as a fund manager versus maybe let's say when you were just getting started as a retail investor in between uh, going from private equity to starting your own shop? Yeah. Um, so how I think about them, I guess, um, I mean, I, I guess like I touched on, there's really two ways you could you could you could look at special situations, you could look at the compounders. If you're looking at the compounders, or even a special situation for that matter, really there's two ways an investor makes money on an investment. Either the stock price goes up, so through appreciation, or you can take cash out of the business through a dividend. Those are really the only two ways you get paid as an investor. And companies are rarely priced in a way that you can make a very high current cash dividend yield, unless there's something obviously broken about the business, right? Like if something's trading at a 15% dividend yield, it's like, yeah, what something's wrong with it? And a lot, most of the times that's right. I mean, I'm not going to say it's always right, but so let's put those to the side for a second, just for the sake of simplicity. And so if you're not making a lot of money off dividends, then in order to make a good return, you need the stock price to go up and stock prices go up for one of two reasons. One is earnings or earnings expectations go up. That's the first reason. Um, and the second one is the multiple ascribed to those earnings or earnings expectations could go up. That's the other reason. And um, except at extreme multiples, um, it's very tough to predict a change in, in what the multiple is going to be of a company. You know, if a company is at 22 times earnings, it's, it's very tough to predict it's going to go to 20 or 24. It's a very tough thing to do. Um, and a, a lot of traditional value investors, they prefer buying things at low multiples, 10 times earnings, 12 times earnings, because you have added optionality of the multiple going up 
over time. But the problem with buying things at a low earnings multiple is kind of like the high, it's, it's become such a standard factor that people screen for. It's kind of like the high dividend yielding one. It's like, if you see something at d- yielding 15% dividend, there's probably something wrong, stay away. If you see something at 10 times earnings, a lot of the times it's because earnings are gonna be very challenged to grow. And um, so um, I think if you're buying something for 10 times earnings, you need to have a pretty strong view on why the market is wrong about the earnings expectations and either that there's gonna be something that makes the multiple go up quickly or that they could actually grow earnings more quickly than the market expects. Um, and the way, I guess, Warren, you know, Warren Buffett, the way he talks about it is you can buy 50 cent dollars and then you can hope that one day the market wakes up and realizes that it's worth a dollar and revalues it. Um, but there's, like I said, there's usually a reason it's trading at, at 50 cents. You know, it could be a melting ice cube, it could be bad management, it's destroying value. And, um, and so the other way is to find a great business and to have a view over a long period of time that it can grow earnings at a, at a very attractive rate. And obviously you can't overpay for that because if you overpay for it, you risk giving up all your earnings growth through multiple compression over time. Um, but if you find a business that's worth a dollar um, and you could buy it for a dollar and you're very confident that it's going to grow at 15, 20, 25 percent a year earnings for five plus years, then you can buy it. You can avoid transactions costs. You can avoid having to replace that investment as soon as it doubles in value. For example, if you bought something for 10 times earnings and it doubled to 20 times earnings and you got it right within six months, that's great. You pat yourself on the back. You need to go find a new one to replace it. You might not find the new one right away. You have to pay taxes on the gains. You might replace it with something you're less familiar familiar with and make a mistake and blow all the gains you just made by doubling your money on the initial investment. If you buy something that's a higher quality business that you have a high degree of confidence can grow at 15% earnings at 15, 20% a year for a long period of time, you're kind of making less decisions, right? You know the business well, you buy it, you put it away, and the less you do in investing, the less likely you are to make mistakes. So it's kind of a nice way to also protect yourself from making mistakes. It's it's efficient in terms of taxes, in terms of cost. Um, it's important, I think, things to think about when you're looking for these compounders. I think the, the there are a few important things you want to look for. You want to look for, uh, like I said, a reasonable valuation so you don't risk compression at exit, multiple compression. You want a business that um, has reasonably high returns on capital. Um, that's important. You want to find a business that has a large address- addressable market, at least when compared to its current size. So if you find a business with $10 million in revenue and its addressable market is $100 million, then that's, that might be fine. If you find a business with $100 million in revenue and its addressable market is $100 million, then there's not a lot of reinvestment runway, obviously. So you want the ability to reinvest at nice returns on capital, and you want a moat to protect those returns on capital, right? Because naturally, if you have good returns on capital, a competition comes and tries to attack you. Um, and then the last thing that's important is a competent and aligned management team that's not robbing from you and that's not doing stupid stuff with your money. Um, so that's those are the kind of the things I look for in compounders. So it's pretty interesting. It sounds like for the most part, you're just you're really trying to avoid those value traps. You know, if we had to assign a a, a, a phrase to you know the one side of the token, you know those you know those uh, those ten x earnings companies that you know you're making the bet that it goes to twenty x and you sell after six months, right? I mean, that's more or less a value trap that you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, if you find something for 10 times that you think could go to 20 and you have a catalyst, that's not a value trap. If you find something for 10, if you find something for 10 times earnings and it's not paying any dividends and it's not growing earnings per share, it's a value trap. Unless, unless you know, it's just being so poorly run and you have a view that someone's about to cut. It's very hard. I think if whenever you make an investment where you're relying on someone else coming to change something about the business, an activist or a private equity or strategic buyer, you're putting your 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 fate, your destiny in someone else's hands and you have no idea how that's going to play out. You always need if you're buying something cheap, you need to think how am I going to make money without anything changing in this situation? You know, maybe maybe there is change, but management's already executed executing on those changes that you want to be made in order to think you're going to get paid. But if management management's not doing whatever you want, and if even if they are doing what you want, but what they're doing isn't going to lead to you getting paid somehow, relying on someone else 
to come in and do that for you is ineffective. And if everything they're doing, even if it's the right thing, is leading to no earnings per share growth and no dividends for you, it's really a value trap. You're hoping someone else comes in and pays more for the same asset that's not growing its value over time than what you pay for it. So I think you have to be very cognizant when you're buying stuff for low earnings multiples. I mean, I own a bunch of stocks at really low earnings multiples, but I have a very strong, I have strong conviction that um, A, those earnings are stable to growing, and B, that management are doing things that are going to make people realize that the, val the value being ascribed to them is too low, and they can grow earnings on a per share basis over time. Um, so anything I own that's like at five times earnings, I think they're doing smart things with their cash, and what they're doing with that five times, you know, five times earnings is basically equivalent to like a 20% free cash flow yield, call it. And so you find a small cap at five times earnings, okay, it's generating a 20% free cash flow yield. What are they doing with that? Are they reinvesting it? If they're reinvesting it, that should lead to earnings growth, right? Because if mm -hmm. the core business is stable and you're investing 20% of your market cap this year and you're not paying it as a dividend, you're, pay you're reinvesting it in the business and there's a return on that investment, your earnings by definition should grow. Mm -hmm. um, so I think the way to avoid value traps is to know that, to know how earnings are going to grow effectively. Well, I was going to say what's it's interesting your philosophy because on one hand, you know, you're you want to look at great businesses that you know you you see a steady you know fifteen twenty percent growth even if you're buying it at that given time, at you know if it's worth a dollar you're buying it at a dollar you're buying it at that fair price you know but what's yeah. interesting is that other side of the coin with what you were just talking about, how you're still buying companies still at those low earnings multiples, but you have that greater conviction. I mean, what, what, what my main question then here is, you know, what are some of the things that you look for that give you greater conviction in those companies that maybe are trading at lower earnings multiples, but you're like, you know what, but I, I see that there's still, you know, uh, a chance for them to grow steadily over time. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a, I'll give you an example of one that's in the portfolio right now. Um, so uh, the fund owns uh, full disclosure. Uh, the fund owns a position in Mastercraft. Mm -hmm. um, it's a boating company. They make uh, ski and wake boats um, that are used on lakes all over the country, mostly U.S. But they sell into Canada and sell some into Europe and Australia. And um, it's actually a very nice little niche and market. Um, ski and wake boats. They kind of they fit a lot of like these mega trends of people leading more active lifestyles and wanting to post cool pictures to Instagram and being you know more experiences over material things and people want to be out on the water with their friends and 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 again touching on the more active lifestyle people are doing more ski and wake wake surfing I don't know if you you have any friends who've done it it's a pretty cool sport you know, I've, where they I've surf been wanting oh I wanted I've been wanting to try it so bad. Oh yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Um, so they it, they kind of touch on all on these 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 trends that are causing ski and wake boats to take share of the overall boating market. So the overall boating market doesn't really grow that much every year, and it's it's cyclical. I mean, ski and wakes are cyclical as well. Um, but the overall boating market doesn't grow that much every year. But ski and wake has been taking share from the overall boating market every year for like over a decade now, and so their unit growth has been very. The, the ski and wake segment has been very good, even though overall boating unit growth hasn't been that great. And there's really only three players who control like 80 or 90% of the market. And it, so it's a consolidated end market and they're rational. It's very hard for um, new competitors to enter because they don't have the dealership networks. They haven't invested decades in R&D on how to like have the best design for these boats. And importantly, brands really matter in the ski and wake segment. If you go out on, if you ever go out on a lake and you're, you have friends who ski and wake, you'll know that it's basically one of three boats people buy. It's Ski Nautique, Malibu, or Mastercraft. And t they tend to be wealthier people who buy these boats. I mean, they're not cheap. They could be like $100,000 for that boat. And so imagine being able to afford a $100,000 boat. You have your lake house. You show up and you bought one of the brands that's like a 10% market share that's no one no one's ever heard of. It's 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 kind of embarrassing. So it's this consolidated oligopoly. They price very rationally. Um, they don't really compete that much on price. Like I said, it's a hundred thousand bucks, and they've taken price increases almost every year through the form of really added content and added features. But their average selling prices have just gone up every year while unit growth has gone up. And so they're rational. 
their margin profile is really attractive compared to, I mean, if I told you like a car manufacturer, you would think, okay, they don't, even if it's at a low PE, like GM, they don't really generate a lot of cash. Like it's at 10 times earnings, five times earnings, whatever. You can't get a big dividend and they're not growing earnings, right? But with these guys, their free cash flow conversion is basically 100% of net income most years. They have, their fixed costs are very low. They have no major purchase commitments. Um, so Mastercraft, for example, their biggest purchase commitment is their engines, but units would have to fall by over 50% before those minimum purchase commitments kicked in. Everything else, there's really no minimum purchase commitments for. So volumes decline, they can cut their costs fairly quickly. Um, they have no pensions, um, they have underfunded pensions. They have no unions that you know come and renegotiate with them every three years and ask them for higher wages. Um, they have negative working capital because they get paid by the de the dealers buy the boats and pay them with their floor plan financing, um, and they get paid right away, even though they pay their parts suppliers, you know, 45 days after they deliver the boat basically to the dealers. So negative working capital, very low fixed costs, great industry structure, taking share secularly in the boating market. And so you're, you, you, you hear this and you're like, all right, so why is it at five times earnings? What's broken? And it's very clear what's broken. People are very worried about the boating cycle rolling over. And I'm, if you look at how much cash they generate, even in a downturn, I mean, if you model any reasonable assumption for a downturn, like you're gonna get paid. They're not squandering that cash. They're actually reinvesting in the business to add to their product lines. And once you get through the other end of the cycle, um, earnings are gonna start growing. I mean, they basically tripled earnings over like six years or something like that, earnings per share during a, a pretty decent economic cycle, but like they're not gonna become distressed. They have a clean balance sheet. And if you're willing to look at this through cycle, there's really no reason this thing should trade at five times earnings. And most likely, assuming we don't go into a very severe recession, um, they're, they're gonna continue to generate cash and grow earnings per share either through um, you know, new, new lines that they're launching. For example, they're launching this new line called Aviara this year. They invested $12 million into it. And the reason they're able to invest such a small amount is because they're already using their existing production facilities. If you wanted to launch a competing line like that, it would end up being much more. Um, but it's going to generate, I don't know, 15, 20 million of sales at really nice incremental margins. And so even if ski and wake segment is flat to slightly down this year, they're still going to grow their earnings this year. Mm -hmm. And so you're buying this thing at five times earnings through cycle. They're definitely going to grow their earnings. Might they have a down year here or two down years? Yeah. But you're not at risk of them meaningfully diluting you because their balance sheet is strong. And once you get out of the other side of that downturn, then this thing becomes a secularly growing high return on cash. I mean, it's crazy. If you look at their cash generation compared to their the amount of equity they have in the business, the returns on capital here are like, I forget if they're like 60 or 70%. It's, I mean, it's crazy. And no one can really come in and compete with them because the brands matter so much in this segment. So mm -hmm. the segment's like, it's secularly growing. It might have some cyclical concerns, great industry structure, great margin profile, great cash generation. And you have to hold your, if you, if, you're, if it's something you're willing to own, you have to hold your nose and say, okay, if we go into a downturn, they're going to make it out of the other end without diluting me. And I'm going to get a higher multiple on the way out. And their earnings aren't going to get hit that much, even through the downturn. I mean, they're variable cost structures. It, the, most of their costs are variable. So earnings won't get hit that much. And I'll have a higher multiple at that point. And if we don't go into a downturn, they're going to grow earnings very nicely over the next few years anyway. I was going to uh, say, I was going to say the, the moral of you using that example there is to show that, look, if you're looking at it, if you want to go in and potentially invest in a company that maybe has a lower earnings multiple and you want that high conviction, that's high conviction right there. That's somebody who knows their stuff <laughs> about a company. I mean, look, that's that's really in a nutshell what you're talking about when you say, look, if you're going to look at companies like this, you got to know it like I just pretty much described. Yeah. Well, they report tomorrow, so hopefully they don't blow up. But um, even if they, I mean, even if, I don't think they're going to blow up, but even if, if this year ends up being a wash year for whatever reason, I mean, people are really worried about the voting cycle rolling over. If it ends up being a wash year, I'm completely fine with owning it through cycle. And I think I'll still do very well coming out of the other side. All right, so I want to go back to some questions that I had, some stock questions that I had for uh, regarding some of your letters. You know, um, 
Another thing you mentioned in your Q4 2018 letter, um, I wanted to discuss a couple points from this one because you talk a lot about uh, different housing-related positions and you provide kind of your high-level view on U.S. housing. I know this is, a, this is a quick turn from everything we were just talking about, but I'm very curious as to your thesis here. Yeah. Um, so uh, going into last year, which was 2019, um, the fund had a fairly large housing basket heading into the year. Um, and my basic view was that, I, don't, I mean, obviously everyone remembers Q4 of 2018. Everyone thought the world was about to end economically in the U.S. And my, my basic view was even if we go into an economic slowdown here in the U.S., house, new housing demand would actually hang in there better than people feared. Um, and really there were two primary reasons for that, one on the supply side and, and one on the demand side. Um, so on the demand side, there's a ton of pent-up demand in the form of millennials who've deferred but haven't abandoned abandoned starting families, right? You're, you're one of us and I'll probably be one of us soon. Um, and the, the reason for that is headship rates, which um, have, been a, have been a drag on um, household formation. Millennial headship rates have been a drag on household formation over the last few decades. More younger people have been going to college. They're getting married later in life. Um, it causes them to delay buying houses, but it's not causing them to cancel having kids and, and having houses. And and they're getting to a point where it's like it's it's now or never. So that that's on the on the demand side, and so that that and not only that, I mean the headship rates have started to reverse after a few decades of being a headwind to demand. They're starting to reverse and they're starting to become a tailwind as you know, kind of the millennials work their way through the system. And so on the supply side, you had a country that went a bit overboard in 2008, right? Heading into 2008 on the supply side, um, heading into the financial crisis, it led to an elevated um, inventory level of housing. Uh, and it created a lot of vacancies when we came out of the financial crisis. And those vacancies had to be absorbed, which meant less new construction. So you had kind of demand being deferred and you had oversupply from everything that was built going into it. Um, and that's been absorbed at this point. And so it's tough to overstate how significant that is when you have both of those crossing in the other direction for the first time in pretty much a decade. Um, and there, there are some other factors um, that might cause construction to actually need to exceed the amount of. So, so if you assume supply and demand is kind of balanced right now, then uh, or if capacity is kind of balanced, you know, where it should be utilization, then basically you would think formations and new new housing starts should equal each other. But there's actually some reasons that um, uh, new housing starts should exceed the amount of people who are trying to move into houses for the first time. I mean, for one, you have um, units that are just getting old and need to be rebuilt, right? Like teardowns, they're just, they've reached the end of their useful life. And you also have this dynamic where there's a lot of dying cities in the country. I hate calling them that, but that's what they are. And, and there's migration away from them towards cities that, that, are, that are growing. You know, there's a lot of these cities in Austin, Nashville, Colorado, where there's just natural migration away from the dying cities. And when you have, let's say one person, he already has his own house and his family, he lives in a dying city, and he decides to move to take a new job in Florida, then he's increasing the vacancy structurally in where he's leaving from. Like there's, there's, if there's no new population coming into that place, then the vacancy rate in that city is going up. But he also is requiring a new house. So he might not even be starting a new house. It might not even be counted in household formation, but it requires additional construction in that new city to meet his demand. So there, there were just a bunch of reasons that made me fairly bullish that housing demand would hold up even if the economy slowed. And so that's why we had a, a, a pretty meaningful housing basket going into the year. It's, in, it's interesting that you talk about it. I mean, we're both living in parts of the country that are, uh, you know, high desirable places to live, me being in LA, you being in Brooklyn. You know, um, it's it's funny you say all that. I mean, you know, my wife and I are already having conversations about that. You know, trying to you know saving up for a house, and you know, we're we're like that's probably the number one conversation that happens in LA. It's like, oh, we want to save up for a house, but where are we going to live? Live because by the time yeah. we have the enough to save for a down payment, uh, <laughs> we're already priced out of the area that we want to live in. You know, and now we're looking yeah. somewhere else. You know, it's 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 pretty interesting. I think, I think it's going to be a big problem for our, uh, for, I think there's going to be a lot of inflation and new housing prices over the next five to 10 years. I do think that, um, you know, now that we've crossed this supply demand imbalance, the amount of construction, you, I mean, if you listen to like home builders on their earnings calls, they say they don't have enough employees, right? So that's going to lead to wage inflation, uh, lumber prices 
if housing demand really starts to pick up, lumber prices are very sensitive to that, so they could go up. So you really could see um, the cost of housing going up pretty meaningfully for our generation, which is, would be unfortunate if it happened. But um, but I think the demand is there. Oh, for sure. And also, but another thing too that's pretty interesting, and I'm only, I'm only saying this because I you know my 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 in-laws happen to be in the home building industry you know they they build homes out here in LA and you know the the time it takes to get the permitting to do it though as well i mean it it takes forever long time long yeah. time i mean yeah. it, it's crazy you know i mean uh yeah. I, I don't know is that something that that could i mean I, i'm sure california and new york are probably have the the hardest you know the most amount of red tape when it comes to then actually going in and building than maybe other parts of the country but is that a potential uh backlog i think that the home builders are pretty good at planning for the permitting and you know getting that in place for the amount of demand they perceive um i think the harder part is i mean you, you literally hear them talking about we we cannot find construction workers right or electricians they, they just can't find them uh when they need them and so wages there, the wage inflation is definitely real for the construction industry. Very so, real issue they're dealing with. So for you, how are you taking advantage of this, of your thesis here on uh, on housing related issues and this industry? Uh, yeah, so so right now the, the fund doesn't own any anything. I mean, I sold out of the housing basket. Housing had a great year last year. Uh, a lot of housing stocks were up a lot. Um, I, I owned um, some housing uh, building products distributors, um, and um, and I pretty much got out of them. So I'm not, not really playing that theme right now. Gotcha. All right. Well, you know, you also provided an outlook in the uh, Q4 2018 letter. You know, uh, how well did you would you say that you predicted uh, what was going to happen in 2019? And, you know, if, if it was right on the money, more or less, you know, I'm sure my audience would love to know then your thoughts on 2020. <laughs> um, I mean, I'll say I, I will take credit for being pretty loud on the fact that I thought people's worries about the market, not the economy, about the market in, the, in Q4 of 2018. I thought people were way too pessimistic on where the market could go. Um, and that's not to say I wasn't worried about how the trade war would impact um, corporate investment and consumer confidence coming into last year. Um, but the recovery since 2008 hasn't really been a typical recovery. I mean, it's been pretty tepid. And so I could see a scenario where economic growth kind of stagnates and chugs along for a longer period of time than what you would expect. Um, and But really what, what made me optimistic on the year was um, U.S. consumer confidence remained strong throughout that period. Uh, consumer balance sheets were in really good shape. And unlike other countries, I don't know, emerging countries like China, in the U.S., consumers account for about 70% of U.S. GDP. Um, so I thought they remained fairly, their balance sheets were healthy, they're not over leveraged, um, their confidence remained relatively high. And and from from the other perspective, not just, that, so that's the economy side. I thought the economy would stay okay because of that. Um, but from a market perspective, I thought valuations weren't really stretched like they were going into 2001, right? You never had a market that was trading at like 30 times, 35 times earnings. And unlike in 2008, so in 2008, you, you kind of had this perfect storm um, where consumers levered the crap out of themselves to buy houses. Um, and who lent them the money to buy the houses? Banks. And banks levered the crap out of themselves in order to lend money to the people who were buying the houses. So when you had the housing cycle start to reverse, to reverse pretty hard, um, those put a lot of stress on the economy, a lot more than the typical recession. Um, you had consumers, which make 70% of GDP, completely cut back on their, right? They had three houses, four houses, some of them, and they're underwater and all of them. So they cut back spending pretty hard. That's 70% of GDP. And then also you had business confidence. I mean, banks weren't lending to businesses anymore. Banks weren't even lending to each other. And so you were worried that there might be a run on banks, businesses they wanted to expand. You know, they couldn't get working capital facilities. They couldn't get facilities to invest in, you know, bank lines to invest in CapEx. So like, and the stock market was tanking. So you had, in addition to consumers pulling back because of their houses getting underwater, they also saw the stock market tanking and they pulled back on spending because of that. And so you have banks much better capitalized today than they were back then. They weren't stopping lending. 
um, consumer confidence remained high. So like, that's kind of what made me cautiously optimistic on the year. Um, and I, I kind of have the same thoughts going into 2020, to be honest. I mean, valuation is clearly not as cheap as it was going into last year. Uh, valuations were really cheap. The overall market valuation was, re- was really cheap going into last year. Um, but there's a saying that bull markets don't die of old age. I'm a subscriber to that saying, um, to that view. And um, I would say the one thing that concerns me a little bit is you're starting to see pockets of euphoria popping up in places. I mean, you could see, you could watch like the Tesla move over the last few days, or last year you had Beyond, right, that move. And two years ago you had pot stock euphoria. But as long as they're confined to these individual pockets, I think it's fine. But if it starts bleeding into the broader market where you start seeing stocks just getting euphoric, I think it starts... While it's good in the short term for confidence, I think it leads to more and more speculation, and um, and it could also lead to more inflation, and uh, that could force the Fed eventually to have to raise interest rates, uh, which is something they clearly don't want to do. But it, and and if they if they raise interest rates, that could have an impact on asset prices, and then that can cause consumer confidence to crack at a time where they're levered long through their via their speculative activities. And, and that's something that I guess would concern me if we saw it, but we're not there yet. I mean, it's just something worth watching. I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic heading into 2020 as well. So you, you also mentioned to me in, in our communications that the fund is currently around 55 to 60% in microcaps, you know, uh, which you, you said is also up quite a bit from where it was about a year ago. Um, why, why would you say, or what would you say is the reason for this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we touched on some of it earlier. I, I mean, I, I like the lack of institutional investment in, in, in spending time and resources to look at, at the space. Um, it does seem like a lot of small caps have been left in the dust as the market has lifted. Um, and the more time I spend looking at these smaller companies, the more I realize how underfollowed they are um, and how a lot of them have really interesting growth opportunities ahead of them uh, that aren't yet discovered. And I think, you know, similar to what I said, what I learned in PE, and you could find it in small cap and micro caps as well. If, if you're able to buy something at three, four, five times EBITDA, it's a reasonably good business. And all you need to get the multiple expand, you know, the multiple up is for it to get slightly larger. Um, I think that's a real tailwind to performance if you can find that. So um, that's pretty much why I look down there. Gotcha. So then, what what you know, we're kind of rounding the bend here, and you know, you're a listener to the podcast, so uh, you know I'm about to ask this question. You know, what would you say is an investing experience that that shaped your current investing thesis. You know what 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 was it that finally inspired you to invest like you are today? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I would say it's a culmination of everything I've experienced since my childhood days. I mean, going back to when I was sitting at the dinner table listening to my parents and their friends talk about business uh, to my time in banking, PE, various hedge funds. And I would say those have all kind of helped shape uh, my views today. Um, something that's helped shape my views as to, for, as to what not to do, is it still sticks out of my mind, is we had a family friend who sold a business to a private equity firm for an enormous amount of money. I mean, to me, it seemed like, it didn't seem like, it was an enormous amount of money. And to be honest, if they had just put in the S&P 500 or bought you know, class A real estate with most of what they got, they would probably be close to billionaires today, but they lost almost all of it. I'm not kidding, almost all of it um, in the dot-com bubble of 2001, 2000, 2001. And so um, that kind of taught me that, um, you know, momentum is a proven factor and it's, it's very tempting. You know, people get FOMO and they see stocks going up and they chase them, but it kind of taught me not to ever buy anything without having having some sort of valuation framework to back it up. And you need to, similar to the Mastercraft um, thesis that we talked about, if, if you own something that's exposed to the economy, you better be willing to own it, um, even if the, the, the price comes down. And in order to do that, you need to have a valuation framework to back it up. Um, and I, I think we touched on this as well, um, avoiding value traps earlier, you know, some experiences that I, I used to be drawn to them. Um, and, you know, like I said, if, if it's not paying you a dividend and it's not growing earnings per share, it doesn't need to be every year, right? MasterCraft might be flat or their earnings per share might be down next year if the economy gets bad. But as I look out two, three, four, five years, I, I can't personally envision a scenario where their earnings per share aren't up pretty meaningfully. And so avoiding, avoiding value traps and understanding why what you're 
buying um, is cheap and why you might still get paid even though that's the case. Um, what else? I would say don't underestimate. Um, I don't really, I try not to underestimate the nuances of really small, uh, the things that might seem really small, how big of an impact they could have on an investment outcome. Um, you know, it, it matters whether a business um, has to reinvest all of its capital back into the business in order to grow. It matters whether a management team um, is making good decisions or not. Um, not all growth is created equally. Um, if you have a loyal shareholder base that's willing to own your stock and not day trade it through a, a rough patch and you have a, a more stable stock, I actually believe that's a strategic advantage for the company. Um, so little stuff like that that I've kind of picked up over the years. and. You know, a lot of reps like like the Kobe analogy. I mean, the more time you spend in the gym, it's it's hard for people to catch up on these little things you pick up on over time. I was I was gonna say I wanted to I, I was gonna ask you one of my other last questions. I always ask is your advice for for new for new investors, not just microcap, but yeah. I think you said it right there. I mean, it's just putting the work. And yeah, I think you just need to try to study as many of the investing grades as possible. There really is there's so many ways to skin the cat. And no two people are alike, but the more you learn about the various ways people have made money in the past and how they've lost money in the past, the more it'll help you kind of find your own way and shape your identity over time. Um, and not just studying great investors, studying successful companies, companies that haven't been success, successful, management teams that are, that are um, perceived as strong management teams, management teams that are perceived as weak management teams, and picking up on, on all those little nuances. Um, and I would say the biggest piece of advice that I'm stealing this from someone. I, I don't. I don't remember who said it, but um, you really can't. You have to do your own work and make your own forecast. As much as people tell you what has happened and what they think might happen, you really can't borrow someone else's conviction. And that's the, that's the quote I'm stealing. Is when a stock's moving against you, it doesn't matter how much the person who pitched it to you is convicted that it's going to work. A, you don't even know if they changed their mind, right? Because they're not telling you until after they're out. B even if they're, they're, they're doubling down and tripling down and you see a stock moving down 10, 20, 30% against you, if you're borrowing their conviction, you're gonna panic sell at the exact worst time or worse, you might just borrow their conviction all the way to zero, you know? So um, that's a big piece of advice that I think is important. Uh, I think study, study, studying behavioral psychology is also really interesting. There's, um, psychology has a really big impact on how people perform in the market. Um, and I think behavioral psych is a really interesting topic. Um, there's some books like Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow, that are I think are great reads. Um, what else? I would say 99% of, of the investable universe is probably not worth spending time on, um, even if it fits your market cap and whatever. I mean, you should have a checklist of the things that are super important to you and things that are deal breakers and things that you could, you know, you're willing to look past. But for the most part, you should be able to filter very quickly. And the faster you learn to filter through the 99% of the BS or stuff that doesn't fit your criteria, the more time you'll have to study and learn and get up to speed on the ones that do fit that criteria. And I think that's a very valuable lesson that you, you kind of learn. I mean, I remember when I first started investing and I, either um, a director of research or a PM at previous funds I was at was like, hey, can you take a look at this? And the first thing I would do is open the 10K and start building a model. And I was like, all right, I'll get all the historical financials in. And, and it, they just said, take a quick look. And I would start building the model. I'm like, all right, I really want to understand the, you know, what happened over the last three years financially. But really, if there's one thing that's a deal breaker, you might spend two, three hours plugging in all the historical financials and trying to model it. And then you realize after the fact that there's something that you can't invest in and you didn't filter appropriately and you wasted a lot of time for no reason. So uh, filter quickly and yeah, I think those are some those are some uh, pieces of advice I give to people. Cool. All right, so before I let you go here, just uh, a few names I were mentioned. Just need a proper disclosure. Uh, Beyond Meat, Tesla. You already talked about Mastercraft, um, Google, and GM. Are you or the fund uh, currently shareholders in any of those names? Uh, shareholder in Google, not a shareholder, not long or short any of the others. Got it. All right. Well, with that, you're wrong. Where can our audience go and find more information about you and One Main Capital? Um, feel free to reach out to me. I'm at Yaron at OneMainCapital.com, or you can go to my website and check out some of my letters. It's www.OneMainCapital.com, and one is the number one, not the word spelled out. 
<laughs> All right, with that, man, thank you so much for joining me today. That was really awesome, and uh, I'm stoked for the next talk that we can do. Awesome, man. Thanks for the time. This was great. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and thank you, Yaron, again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast. Go to podme.com and search Planet Microcap podcast, or on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube, and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast, where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things investing. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone. Mm-hmm.